0: If I find out that there's a gap that isn't being filled at the moment within that, that role or there's something else that I can bring bring to the party, then all of a sudden, you know, my relative value in that transaction has, has increased. And these are things that you won't find out if you go into negotiation, just purely focused on what's important to you. <laughs>
1: and I welcome you to another episode of Reaching Your Goals. Reaching Your Goals is a career podcast where I sit down with truly inspiring individuals and we dig deep on leadership and career-related topics to get you from motion into action and make things happen. In case you wonder, I either wear the hat of a certified executive and career coach or a management consultant and I have an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. My mission is to inspire you to reach your goals, lead with kindness and have some fun along the way. Whether you will describe our topic as fun today is to be seen. It is very, very important, however. It's all about negotiating better and finding hidden value. We've heard a number of times on this show that we are negotiating for ourselves all the time. So if we can get better at that, that would have a huge impact. So let's go for it. My guest is Richard Hoare, and he is an expert in negotiations. He actually just won the UK Business Book Award for the book he co-authored, do deal, negotiate better, tap hidden value and rich relationships. Richard has worked as a lawyer in the music industry for the past 20 years. His firm, Hoare Associates, represents a dazzling array of talent and some of the most innovative and exciting businesses working in music today. When he is not negotiating deals for these clients, Richard enjoys spending time in his shed with the synthesizers or out in the wilds walking or climbing. Richard lives in Somerset in the UK with his wife, two young boys and an infuriating beagle. Before we get started, let me quickly check in with you. Have you already rated the show in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify? In Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review and I love reading those. A big, big thank you also to anybody and everybody who has already left a review. Your support means the world to me. Thank you. And now, let's jump in. Richard, it's great to see you again. How are you doing
0: today? Great to see you, Hannah. Yeah, very good, thank you. Uh, It's been a long week, so we're nearly at the weekend, so feeling good.
1: (laughs) And you got your coffee, I think that's important to mention. (laughs) (laughs) And to get things started, I would like to start with some rapid-fire questions. Short questions, short answers. Imagine, if you could travel to any year in a time machine, what year would you choose and why? Why? Forward or backwards? Yeah,
0: you choose. I'd like, love to travel forwards, I think, going backwards. I think we people are very, you know, there's lots of crazy stuff going on in the world, but I really believe we live in, in the best time that there's ever been to be alive. So I think I'd like to go forward into the future, maybe not even that far into the future, maybe like five or ten years, and see where we're at with um, AI and what technology's done to help solve some of the really difficult problems that the world's contending with today.
1: And do you still remember what you wanted to become when you were a little kid?
0: I always loved music, so I I thought I wanted to do something to do with music. I I also used to really love magic when I was younger. I think Mm. there was probably a time when I wanted to be like a magician on a stage in Las Vegas, making tigers disappear, that kind of thing. So we're not quite there, but who knows what's around the corner.
1: Wow, and you just mentioned music. Imagine you had become a singer yourself. What would have been your genre?
0: Oh, if I was a singer, I think I would have loved to have been, again, with a Time Machine, going back to the 1960s and being a kind of Dean Martin or Bobby Darin type era, era singer in a smoky club in las vegas somewhere that would that would be amazing
1: wow i can see you on stage there and (laughs) say how would your family and friends describe you in one word
0: how would my family and friends describe me in one word kind i hope
1: love it and we will talk about negotiation today when is actually the last time that you did negotiate for yourself
0: for myself okay so negotiating on my... Beh- I mean, we're all negotiating all, all of the time, really. So I probably negotiated with my kids. In fact, we're just going through a really interesting negotiation with our kids who are 8 and 11, and the oldest is about to get a mobile phone. Oh, wow. We're negotiating, and we're including him in the negotiation. We're not imposing rules on him. We're asking him to, to work out with us the ways in which he can use his phone and... And that kind of stuff. So that's a really interesting negotiation we're having at the moment.
1: Interesting. And say, what is one of the most important qualities in a leader?
0: I think the ability to listen is really important for for a leader.
1: What is the best advice you've been offered in your personal or in your professional life?
0: Wow, these are great quickfire questions. Recently, something I've heard, heard a lot is this idea that we need to ensure needs are met at the very basic level and the example that seems to keep turning up in podcasts and books is the idea that if you're in an airplane and something terrible happens they suggest that you make sure that you get your oxygen supply sorted out before you try and do anything because if you can't breathe you can't help any, anyone else and so for me it's finding out what my own personal oxygen supply is and what, what's in, important for me to to be able to function properly uh, It's coffee this morning <laughs> and uh, but also when I look around me with my uh, team and it's ensuring I understand what, what their own version of that oxygen supply is because it looks very different to, to everyone else. Yes. For some people it might be just crashing out of the weekend and playing video games. For other people it might be going climbing an, a mountain which really, again, goes back to listening and understanding what's, what's important for the individuals and ensuring that they've got what they need to be able to, um, to thrive and reach their goal.
1: What do you need to be at your best
0: I always thought I needed my own personal space and time and time away and I would crave that I think especially with a young family and a busy job and a dog and all the rest of it you feel like you don't get too, too much of that but invariably once I spend an afternoon with myself I quickly want to kind of get back to <laughs> get back to everyone else else again so I think uh, small bits like that I really really love the great outdoors and just the ability to uh, climb the climbing or um, go hiking is really really important to me
1: to my question for the rapid fire, who is one of your role models?
0: Wow, I had lots of role models growing up and I was always looking for role models, whether that was my friends at school who I felt were kind of exemplified qualities that I wanted to try to recreate. And then all through, all through my career, there were lots lots of role models. And I think now it's less looking at people who have achieved amazing things in, in their, their work or their, their careers and it's... And it's more looking at people who've been able to achieve amazing things whilst integrating that into their life and their family and their sense of place. So I would say, you know, someone like Michael Evis, who's, who started Glastonbury Festival on his farm and he turned it into the most amazing music event in the world, but he did so on his own terms and in his own own background. I think that's incredi- incredibly admirable. And last question. What is one thing we cannot Google about you? <laughs> what well, is one thing you can't, can't Google about me? My record collection. I've got all these records here. I, I love and they're a big, and I listen to all the time. And I play down at the, the market in, in the town where, where we live every first Sunday of every month. And they're a big, big part of my life. I listen to the, my records all, all the time. But you won't find a list, list of those on Google
1: how many records do you have? It seems like a lot.
0: <laughs> oh, goodness, I don't know. I suppose this is a section of them. That is, it's thousands. It's a problem.
1: <gasps> Holy moly.
0: Wow. I've slowed down Slowed down on record record buying.
1: Thank you for sharing. So now we already know bits and pieces about you. I'm curious to find out how you ended up being a lawyer in the music business. What are the key milestones that led you to exactly this place?
0: Oh, wow. So, I think as a like a, a teenager, I settled on doing a law degree as it seemed like a really, you know, I did okay at school, not brilliantly, um, but it seemed like a good safe bet for, for a career. Lots of options of things that you can do as well as be, being a lawyer. And I did my first year at university and loved it. You do all the interesting bits of law, contract and Criminal law and the law of torts. And
1: they get you hooked.
0: <laughs> they get you hooked. And then the second year, oh my goodness, it was land law and it was European Union legislation uh, it was, and uh, the law of trusts. It was really dry and difficult. And fortunately, at the same time, I met my, uh, around that time, I met my girlfriend at the time's godmother who worked as a lawyer for Elton John's management company. And I had no idea that. that that was something that you could do that you could combine an area that you were interested in with the kind of the profession that you were studying so that was complete eureka moment for me I realised that that was something I could do and decided that I really really wanted to do to do that and she was really kind this lady and it gave me the names and email addresses of all of the music law firms and uh, record labels that had legal departments and so in my third year at university we had like a, a placement year where you could go and work in, in in industry i applied to all of those those firms and was roundly rejected from from all, all of all of those with the exception of one and that's kind of where the the uh, the first chapter of the book book starts so that i had my first First year in the legal department of a record company called BMG, and worked with some fantastic people who I'm still in touch with today. Really got the bug. I think at that point I thought I would rather work on the artist side of things than working for the record record labels. I felt like that was where you could fight fight the good fight. And so I went back to university for my final year and my another year of law school. And wrote a dissertation all about Elvis Presley, which was very, and the rights in his, his recordings, which were due to expire after 50 years. So I got really, really nerdy on that and, and thoroughly enjoyed that. And then after I finished my law school, I went, I managed to get a training contract at a fantastic law firm in London called, called Clinton's, who represented some of my musical heroes. And, and that was where I stayed for, for 12 years and had the most amazing time. Going, part of the job was going out to see new bands and meeting all these incredible artists and weird and wonderful people and learning from all these absolutely phenomenal negotiators who all had very different negotiation styles and it was an an incredible incredible time so that's yeah that was how how I how I got started really wow
1: thank you for sharing and you didn't know mention that you also wrote a book yes you also mentioned in the beginning that me time is something that you need to recharge and you mm-hmm. already have a demanding job you have family you have a dog you have hobbies and then on top you're like hey I'm bored let me write something
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that yeah that, yeah when you frame it like that it doesn't ne- doesn't seem like such an o- obvious idea does it? it it was during the lockdown so obviously everyone had a bit more time you know there was a bit a bit less going out, out and about. We'd run courses about how to negotiate specifically aimed at people in, in the music industry. Someone suggested that we might want to put that into a book. There's hundreds, thousands of books about negotiation that already exist. And so the only book that I wanted to write really with Andrew was one that reflected our own experiences and was really the, the purpose of the book, I think, was to have a very short and accessible book. So it's un, under 150 pages. But that would really, again, going back to the time machine, if I'd given that book to, to me in the year 2000 when I started, started working in the music industry, it's the sort of book that I think I would have found really helpful then because it uh, shortcuts and gets to the point of a lot of concepts and ideas around negotiation, which unfortunately I've had to learn through tr- trial and error.
1: This is going back to the first chapter when you reflect on you going into the
0: work placement
1: Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, that was the term.
0: The company had a standard rate, I think, that they paid to all of the university students who came to work, work with them, and it was very, very, very low. And I, in all my naivety and enthusiasm, just accepted it without asking any questions or trying, trying to negotiate at all. And we look at that in the first chapters of the book and see whether that was, it was, was a, t- a terrible negotiation strategy or whether on reflection... It, it may have had some, some benefits being being more accommodating at that stage.
1: And I love that example, and I will pick it up again. When do we actually negotiate more, say, if you look at our
0: own work? I think it's really difficult, isn't it? And I come across all the, this all the time with friends who are freelancers who – they know that if they were arguing on behalf of a, of a friend or negotiating on, on behalf of a friend or someone they cared about, they'd probably approach it very differently to the way in which they would for themselves in a way that we wouldn't do if we were being asked to do the same thing for other, for other people. I think it's really, it's really good to be aware of that and to apply a, a degree of detachment in those situations. If you, if you are a freelancer or if you're, you know, you're negotiating on, on your own behalf, to really just try to separate those those two things and maybe again time machine might be helpful here maybe you're not just thinking about it in terms of you you're thinking about it in terms of future you and you're saying okay the person that i'm negotiating this you know this contract for freelance work or the price that i'm paying for my house or, or my car it's not about me right now it's about me 5 years down the line and what difference that will make and if you and that might be a helpful Model to employ in in your mind to to separate those those two things, but it's something that comes up again and again. And I know I'm guilty of it. People will say to me, "Oh, you know, you negotiate. Don't don't you must love negotiating when you're buying a car and all the rest of it." And absolutely not. Oh, you don't? No, 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 not not at all. Not for not for myself. I mean, I like negotiating for, for other people, but I get paid paid really well by those other people in order to do that on their behalf. When it gets to the weekend. And I've got stuff that I, I want to do um, and it's rare that I'll want to spend that time negotiating.
1: That is one thing I was wondering when you're negotiating, how does it feel? Is it like full of like the kick of adrenaline, like <laughs> the adrenaline kicking in or is there still some <gasps> frightened feeling?
0: Yeah, it can have that uh, adrenaline rush, I think, if you're involved in negotiations, which are very time, time critical. But most of the negotiations that that we work on, it tends to be lots of really boring background stuff that leads up to the negotiation, which should hopefully make the the point at which you get to doing the nego- negotiation work should be quite smooth. And you know, you should have done a lot of the work in your head in preparation. In, in the lead up to that, most of my work in negotiation is done at a stage removed and is, is about finding, gathering as much information as possible and planning a strategy for how we execute negotiation so that when you get to the negotiation itself, things hopefully run a bit more smoothly. However, that's not always the case. And when you're up against a deadline or there are unpredictable factors involved, then absolutely it get, can get a little bit...
1: To jump in, there were two abbreviations you are really highlighting in your book. Let's start with the BATNA and the sopa.
0: If you read any books about negotiation, you won't get very far before you run into an acronym, but they get thrown around all the time. The two you've highlighted there are ones that get thrown around and are really good to familiarize, I think for anyone to familiarize themselves with in terms of it having an Rounding of some of the principles that go into negotiation. The first one that you mentioned is BATNA, which stands for best alternative to a negotiated running out of fingers agreement. So it's it's well, what what happens if if we don't reach an agreement? You know, so lots of I think lots of people go into negotiations with very much focused on what they want to get out of the arrangement, but they don't ever really stop and think, well. What if the other other person doesn't doesn't agree agree to that?
1: It's like, what is my plan B?
0: Precisely, precisely. Where is the fire exit? If I if I need, if I need to get out of here quickly, what's my plan B? I used to share an office with a friend, and it was in a really nice co working space. But the there were some changes to how the co working space was being run. I think there was going to be an increase to the to the rent, or something was changing that neither of us were particularly keen on. And so my friend's approach was to just kind of go and shout at the the guy who who owned the. He didn't shout him; just trying to get a reduction in the rent or whatever it was. He just sort of stormed straight in there. My feeling was that if I didn't have a plan B, then that wasn't going to going to get us anywhere. So that stage. We started to look around to see if there was other office yeah. other office space available and what that would cost and what that would look like. And so that's just a, one really sim- simple example. But I think it's it's amazing how often people forget to do that. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't take long to to come up with that plan B.
1: And I feel the magic that is happening there that it is putting you back in control because you control the alternatives you have. And you can look for them and like having control is good for a peace of mind.
0: 100%. The other thing to bear in mind is that that plan B won't come into fruition if you do end up making an agreement with someone. But that plan B might not come into fruition at all. <laughs> you yes. know, I think sometimes it's it can be just as useful to concoct a plan B even if, you know, the chances of you following through with it are very, are very slim. At least you know in the back of your mind that there's there some, something that you could follow through with. I, I was really aware of it when the UK was going through the Brexit process. So, and we won't let's not get get started on started on that. But but in that process, of, I have
1: a feeling you're on the same page
0: here. anyway. <laughs> on, in that process, you saw the UK government doing these incredible kind of acrobatic tricks of suggesting what we would do if there was a no if there was a no deal brexit so if we did not reach an ag- agreement this is what the uk would do there was min- minimal minimal chance that they that those things would ever come come to fruition but i do appreciate from a negotiation perspective that when in when in those negotiations when it's been talked about the prospect of there being no deal that yes. the uk had to create the illusion at least however unlikely that there was an option because without that you're always going to find yourself forced into a situation. Yes you give your power away that is
1: your only option you're stuck and so the other term is this SOPA what is behind that?
0: SOPA is really important as well these are like two super basic things that I think everyone can just understand and have these models in in their in their mind but again very often just get get forgotten about. A zopa stands for zone of possible agreement and it's it's that simple. you know in, on this side this is one one party and these represent your best case and your worst case scenario and likewise over here best case best case and worst case scenario. If these two worst cases don't overlap, then you're never going to reach an agreement. You know, you're, not, you're, just, you're just too far apart. There is no zone. And it's understanding where that overlap lies between the two, the two parties uh, to understand if there's a possibility for an agreement. And so what we try to do really early on in negotiations is to understand what that zone looks like. And if indeed there is a zone, because if it doesn't exist, then you're better off shaking hands and going, going and finding uh, some other opportunities to explore with other people
1: said that also before that preparation plays a big role Mm -hmm. and I guess there's also this preparation to understand what is my aspiration? Like, well, when would I walk away? Imagine if we stick to one example yeah. and to make it really relatable, imagine you want to go into a new job. You are changing fields. So you go from being an accountant to a project manager. So you might not really have the knowledge. What does that really pay? Because you haven't done it yet. It's a different company. So there are a number of unknowns. Um
0: Precisely, and I think, as you alluded to before, you know, what's something you won't find on on Google Google about? We assume that there's information about everything, everywhere, but there's all sorts of information which is is behind closed doors. But I think people should should really work hard to try and build up as as clear a picture as possible, even if you're not able to find out specifics. Of doing your best and being as resourceful as you can. To understand what a range of possible outcomes might might be there, and that might be again, there probably are places on the internet where you can find out. It's it called Glassdoor and places like that. Or it might be that you can use LinkedIn really resourcefully to find out if you know someone who knows someone who's worked in that company or in a similar area, and not being afraid to to kind of reach out to people on, on a human level and ask, ask those questions. And I think if you're authentic about your reasons for wanting to ask, then there's no harm in us asking people about, about those things. And you can be very polite about it and say, you know, obviously don't tell me anything that you feel uncomfortable sharing, but I'm going to this situation. And I really want to try to understand as much as possible about the role and about what I could expect in in terms of my my remuneration package there, etc. Is there anything that you can tell me that would help fill in some of some of the blanks? And I think if you're polite and you're sincere about your motivations for asking for those things, very often people are really. I'd really happy to share, share that information with you.
1: So that means that one of the first key steps is to actually do your preparation in the sense of like, what do I want to get out of the deal? What is my expectation? What is even my aspiration to really define your zone where you can offer a
0: deal? Absolutely. That's, I would say that's 50% of the preparation process. The other 50% of the preparation process is really trying to understand what your counterpart is looking for out of, out of the deal. And mm-hmm. I think, again, we often forget forget to do that but particularly in a job job interview I think if again if I was going back and talking to to 20 year old me about job interview process I would say you need to find out really really find out what they're looking for and where the gaps are in what they're doing and what you can do to help meet their needs because I think so often we think about what's important for us you know the the, you know the working conditions and they're paying pay all, <laughs> the pay all, all the rest of it. It's all about me, 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 me. So if I find out that there's that there's a gap that isn't being filled at the moment within that that role, or there's something else that I can bring bring to the party, there's a particular software program that I understand really well that they just need some help implementing. Then all of a sudden, you know, my relative value in that uh, transaction has has increased. And these are things that you won't find out if you go into negotiation, just purely focused on what's important to you.
1: In your book, you use the example of a yarn and that like one person is interested in the red color, the other one in the blue color. But in your negotiation, you build a trust and suddenly you realize maybe one person even wants another color and you create jointly
0: value. So we use that, that mental model of all different types of, string in there if you go into both go into negotiation and you say right that's the thing i want and the other person says which is red string the other person says that's the thing i want blue string you jump in there and you just try and both try and pull at the thing that you want to get out of it then invariably you just get you're going to get stuck in that situation things because you find out that what you want is invariably wrapped up with with what they want and unless you work together to try and un, untangle those things collaboratively and really, the best you hope for in that situation is you just pull a certain amount out, and then at some point you just have to cut it off, and you get you get left with a, a small amount of what what you want. The ideal situation, as you described, I think, is where you really talk to each other, you know, gradually um, sharing information with each other about what's important to to one another, and you're then able to help each other extract the thing that's most important to them from from the negotiation and along the way as you as you rightly said there might be bits of yellow string or bits of green string or other things in that process that you discover are going to be of value to one or one or other of you and you can go about working out how you allocate those things between you and idea being that at the end of it you've allocated all of the value or as much of the value as possible that exists in that transaction rather than simply just grabbing what we think is, is the thing that's important to us and shucking everything else in the bin effectively because we've been unable to un- untangle and un- unlock that value
1: what I'm hearing is also that when you then actually talk one of those important questions is what is important to you here
0: hugely yeah and and the thing is we can't expect people to tell us that on day one if I were to say to someone you know the only thing that's important to me in this deal is 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 the price then I may have just given away way too much information there. And if I'm working with a trusted negotiation counterpart, then they may respond positively to that and say, great, I'm glad you told me that. The only thing that's important to me is how long, you know, this this relationship lasts for. And then, you know, you trust each other and you can work that out. That's great if everyone in the world works like that. The experience suggests that some people aren't as generous as, as that. And so... What we tend to find in negotiation is that and, and until you've been working with people for a while and you understand that there's a, a, there's a basis of trust there between, between you to a ex- certain extent, then that process of sharing information is much more gradual. It's kind of step by step. You know, I kind of like, you know, this is kind of important to me.
1: It's like dating you, you right? <laughs> it's, like,
0: it's like dating, it's like dancing, you know, there's lots of great metaphors for it it's a gentle gentle give and take and it really is about establishing trust
1: and still at some point you will be asked what are you expecting and I guess that's when the anchoring is coming in there what is it and how should we go about it
0: anchoring is really really important concept in negotiation as well we're covering all the top chapters in the books fantastic
1: well you told me to read it didn't you
0: (laughs) (laughs) anchoring anchoring's is really important it relies on you know a psychological bias that we have have in our brains to be for our minds to be drawn to the to, to one significant factor if we're out for a walk in um in the part of the countryside we've not been to before and we see a, a rustling hear a rustling in in the leaves over, over there our minds is, is drawn to it because our, Somewhere deep in our ancestral brains, there's a part of the brain that's, that's triggered that says that could be dangerous and and so our brains are hardwired to focus in on 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 one important factor and to often to the expense of, of lots of the de- details around it. And so with anchoring what we find if I'm going into a negotiation, um, it can be very useful to to set the stage and to ask my counterpart to focus on one particular thing and where you choose to place that anchor is very very important because if we start by placing a very low number then the person on the other side of the bargaining table whether they like it or not it's the first time that that number's been mentioned and so throughout the negotiation that number is what the brain anchors on it's hard to move away from that expectation or that expectation will always be in the back of back of back of someone's yes. someone's minds whether that's a low number or a high number
1: i go back to my example of finding a new job so now our person is sitting in the actual job interview and is being asked so how much money do you want? And I feel like when you put the anchor too low, you might leave something on the table. If it's too high and it seems outrageous, your counterpart might not take that as well either.
0: There's all sorts of thinking on this. And the example you've given is is a great one. And I think it really comes down to your own personal preference at the end of the day. Some people they you know they, they want to come out of that, that job interview with the best possible result on, on day one. And I, you hear people saying that, you know, when you're making these opening offers, what was the phrase I heard the other day? I think it's from quite a famous uh, negotiation expert. They said that you should place your, you should place your anchor just beyond crazy or or something like that, you know, so think of, think of a crazy, crazy number. Or maybe it's just the right side of crazy. So you can give a crazy number, then you just put pull it back, pull it back a little bit. And I think there's definitely something to be to be said for that approach. I think personally, my approach would be to to try and place an anchor that is that shows a high expectation, uh, you know, and a, and a sense of, of under, truly understanding a what the, the range of possible value is there because you've done your homework. But B that places your value and your expectation at, at the high high end of that because you um, value your own um, your own ability and your co- contribution. But I also think there's there's room in that situation to essentially, especially in a job job interview, where you haven't proven your side of side of the trans, transaction. And I think there's certainly room to to say that you feel uh, that you know you will almost ex- accept something at the at the lower end of what's reasonably acceptable, but perhaps on the understanding that you'd expect a review date sooner rather than later, so that you can you can establish that you can if you feel confident in your ability and what you can do. I would think that if you say, you know, look, I'm willing to start here, but I know that after six months I, I should have been able to prove to you beyond any doubt that my worth is is this, you might find that when it comes to that six month date if you're as good as you think you are then you'll you'll be able to track that that improved rate without any difficulty and it may set the tone for your relationship uh, with your employer going forward uh, in a way the dynamic might be better than if you over promise and under deliver so I think it really comes down to the in- individual and where you want, want to sit in in those things and and again what your priorities we're very much focusing on the uh on the, the price side of uh of the bargain which is really really important but then there's so many other other things as well because if the if you get the the best possible salary but then your employer's expecting you to work every hour god god sends and never switch your emails off and take take no holidays then that price may not be may not be worth it.
1: Yeah, that is for sure. I mean and then if you break it down by the hour it's maybe not as good as you thought it is. Yeah. I love also the suggestion of defining a review day so that you can prove yourself and you build up that relationship. The one thing that I got as an advice when I was at grad school was to say, oh, I want a fair salary. Like that is within the normal range. Yeah. And that actually worked quite well. So I left it a little bit loose because I was scared of putting an anchor too low, you know, doing the female thing where you're not really trying to go to the crazy side of things. Yeah. So I was always like, it needs to be fair. And I will know. And one thing I learned in your book, and I love that is that there is less and less one of negotiations because with the social world, something like trip advice, glass door, things get around. So even I think if in a salary negotiation, you really get, I don't want to use the word, but you you get a, a salary that is not fair. Where it might come out and it might backfire to an employer. So I have a feeling they cannot even afford doing that anymore yeah. or less and less.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah, again, I think with the the amount of information and connectivity that that's out there, it's so rare that we negotiate in a, in a complete vacuum. And we try and think of examples of it sometimes. And it might might be you know if you're on holiday and it, you know someone comes up and is trying to sell you a a a souvenir on a on a beach. It's those kind of interactions. Yes. Those are really the only interactions left, I think, where you're just where there's no bigger bigger picture. It's really just, you know you're going to encounter this person once and prob- probably never again. I think in almost every other circumstance nowadays, there is a wider context to the nego- negotiation we have. Simon Sinek is a fantastic author and thought thought leader. He wrote a book a couple of years ago called infinite games or the infinite game or some, something like that and really it, it talks about the distinction between playing a game like chess where it's got defined rules and, and, a, and a fixed outcome versus business or life or you know or the music industry where it's an infinite game and different players come and go and there's no end point there's no point at which I go for, for most of us it's not really that you that there's not a, a defined finish win or lose point you're either ahead or behind and it's really comes down to how you play and how you deal with the, the people who you, you interact with on a, on a day, day-to-day basis.
1: Yes I mean you will meet again. It's like one day you are representing the artist the next day the record label or the festival like you meet all the players and word gets around and you have a certain reputation.
0: Precisely and it goes back again to what we were talking about before that that dynamic of how you exchange information with one another. And how important that is, you know. If you're able to freely trust each other and share that information, then you can get to a point where you can unlock all of the value that's, that exists in that in that transaction. But if I'm walking into a negotiation with someone who has been proven to be uh, slippery or un- untrustworthy, yes. then it it really slows down the process of the way in which you can can share that information. And I might be incredibly guarded about the information that I give. And you can see in that dynamic how it becomes harder to, to get the best possible result for, for both, both parties.
1: We're already coming to the end of our time together. Those were like really, really nice last words. Have some trust that the other side is also somehow on your side because you all want to build a long lasting collaborative relationship and there is no need to be scared of negotiations maybe let's have some fun with it
0: yeah, exactly yeah we can be more play, playful with it for, sh- for sure but that's not to say you know there's a difference between overcoming the fear but this is why I love love rock climbing you know I, I think lots of people look at it and go that looks, looks, looks crazy and if you look at Alex Honnold or someone doing it without any ropes then we'd probably agree with that but even in that situation or any skillful rock rock climber is doing absolutely everything they can at every step along the way to minimize the risks to take. You know they take all of the pre- preparation that they need to in in order to do that. And so, in situations that might be scary or um, induce nervousness, then they're able to o- overcome that because they've taken all, all the preparation they need to. So, I think same with scary negotiations, we shouldn't just walk into them blind blindly, but we should go into it with a sense that if we prepare well enough if we read some great great books about negotiation then and we practice then we can get to a point where those things don't have to be scary yes
1: and practice makes perfect so I think it's Absolutely. like one thing I'm also taking away is do your homework so that you know when will you walk away what is your best alternative make your plan b and that gives you control back and if you do that try practice and you will get better Three more questions for you what is coming up next for you
0: I'm having a bit of a rest at the moment <laughs> or trying to have a bit of a rest we have a very intense period the uh, first few months of the year when, when we're working on things with um, uh, with the festival so that's really that's really in, intense for us so I, I'm taking some time to uh, uh, work on the business uh, work out where where we go go from there so that's that's one thing part of that is uh, within the business again is how we embrace automation and machine learning to to enhance what what we're doing i'm just looking forward to spending some time time with my family over the over this over the summer holidays kids break up from school at the end of next week so we'll have them have them running around
1: that's sometimes the best thing anyway
0: absolutely and
1: for this show who else should i have on
0: I've just got back from an event called the Do Lectures which is a phenomenal event that's uh, held in West Wales each year. It's a very small event for 100 people and they have incredible speakers from all around the world come to give talks on such a diverse range of topics and then those talks are made pretty available like like TED, TED talks I would encourage you to have a look, look at those and invite any one of those uh, incredible people who came, came, came to speak there
1: and for anybody who is really inspired now they should go buy your book it's only 120 pages so it's do deal negotiate better tag hidden value and rich relationships it's a quick read it's well written you even won an award for it so I can highly recommend that so for anybody they should get that book how else can they stay in touch with you
0: LinkedIn's the best place to find me. Just uh, if you search Richard Hall, music music lawyer, there's a picture of me with a, a cheesy grin there. So that's a good good place to to get get in touch and where we kind of post various things about negotiation and what we're up to. Perfect.
1: Then thank you so much for joining me today, sharing your wisdom on negotiations, and making sure we are all getting better at it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Hannah. Really appreciate you having me on.
1: I hope you feel ready for your next negotiation. And don't forget to follow the show on social at Reaching Your Goals Podcast and me at Delegate and you're still listening. So if you have not yet hit the subscribe button, please do so wherever you listen to your podcast. This way you will get the next episode in your inbox when it drops on Tuesday. And now we are done for the day. We are one step closer to reaching your goals. Talk to you guys next week. Bye.